Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Taylor. He is a personal finance journalist, uh, writes for various newspapers. He's also done a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates, Invest Before Paying Off Debt, and Other Tips Your Professors Didn't Teach You. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Michael. Jordan, thank you so much. Uh, let's just get a little bit of your background. Uh, you were in the financial business for a while. Just a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure, yeah. Uh, um, I guess the top of the resume is I used to work for Goldman Sachs. I was a bond salesman. Uh, I was a vice president, which I like to joke is a heartbeat away from the presidency, except there are about 6,000 of us. Um, and I sold emerging market bonds and mortgage bonds. The mortgage bonds is my last stint at Goldman, and it was a couple of years before the crisis. But one of my jokes there is that I was part of a small cog in the machine that created the weapons of mass financial destruction that nearly took us down in 2008. Uh, after that, I, I ran an investment fund, and, and starting in about 2012, I started writing and teaching about finance, and I can give you more reasons for that, uh, but, the, but the brief resume is Wall Street, then my own distressed investment fund, and then been teaching and writing about finance ever since. So a lot of people getting out of college these days, what is their state of financial literacy, and therefore, why do you think you needed to do this book? Oh, boy, <laughs> there's so much there. The financial literacy, um, and I'm going to make up a, a number, but uh, see if it resonates with you and with your listeners. But I think things somewhere between 90 and 95% of people go, I'm not a finance person. I don't really get this. Um, and I think there's a, maybe a 5 to 10% of folks who are super lucky because they had a parent who knew what was going on or was sophisticated. But uh, in general, I'm going to make a gross up generalization. We don't get taught this in college. We don't get taught this, taught this in high school. We don't get taught it in junior high, which is probably when it should start. Um, so most people muddle through for decades. Uh, in my, my demographic, I'm 46, I think it's starting to figure out the consequences of what they do and that they could kind of get it. But they, they also appreciate this book because they go, oh, I'm, some of these things, I'm, I know what I'm doing. A lot of things I don't yet know what I'm doing. But over a couple of decades, you, you start to get it. The average 22-year-old that I talk to um, hasn't even been faced with the problems yet. Um, so they have a lot of questions. Your uh, blog is at uh, bankers-anonymous.com. What kind of things can people find at your blog site? Yeah, so that was inspired post-crisis. Uh, and the Bankers Anonymous is really a reference to uh, we need to get sober and serious about um, finances. And I felt uh, very mission-driven after the crisis to, that I understood finances, and a lot of people didn't. And that was, in some sense, uh, a reason for the crisis. The, the average person trying to pay their mortgage didn't understand it. The journalists were bad at this. The bankers were also misinformed and, and regulators and politicians also. So it, I, I originally wrote a lot about Wall Street and uh, because I came from there. And it evolved over time. People want to be like, well, how do I deal with my home equity line of credit? Or what should I think about credit cards? Or, hey, I've been pitching annuity, which I do. So I, I began to um, develop over time in response to questions. Oh, people really have a lot of personal finance questions. But I roam around. I write for uh, two Texas newspapers, so I tend to cover some Texas-based stories uh, that end up on my blog also, because that's where I live, and, and it's a big state, and Texans are very um, patriotic, so they want to hear about themselves. Uh, how is your book uh, and this kind of uh, rules for new college graduates different from other – there's tons of personal finance books out there. How is yours different from the other ones? 
Yeah, there's no limitation to personal finance books out there. Um, the first thing I would say is that I, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but you've written many books, right? 13 or something. Um, yes. I found I, I was writing this book out of, uh, this is a big motivator, because uh, I, I was mad about other things that I saw out there. So one of the things that makes me mad, and it's reflected in the book, is that, that personal finance books generally assume that the good behavior they're trying to encourage readers is based on something called compound interest. But, and, and you might have a table in the book that shows the effects of compound interest, both because of uh, how to avoid high interest debt or how to invest for the long run, but they never teach the math. And I, found, uh, I have found that if you can teach the math to somebody, they no longer have to depend upon a guru. They can say, wait, I can do this myself in a spreadsheet. I don't need to take your word for it or take this on faith. I can figure out why these are the right behaviors. So number one difference is from any other finance book I've ever read is that's dedicated to the you know non-expert audience is I can teach you this math and you should absolutely learn it and it would be not a very long period of time to learn it. So I dedicate it at great, I would say, risk chapters four and five very early on the book. Like here, we're going to have some math chapters. Um, so that's a turnoff because people are allergic to it. But I feel like I had to do that because when I read other books, they don't teach it and they just assume, well, just trust me that this math works this way and now I'm going to tell you all the good behaviors. That's the first way it's different. Uh, the, I guess I would say the second way it's different, uh, I would like to think is um, in other, many of the finance books that I've read uh, are almost written by CPAs for CPAs or, or assume a kind of a uh, kind of a dry approach. So I'd like to think mine's a little bit funny and a little bit, um, a little bit edgier than that. <laughs> Those okay. are two main distinguishing characteristics. Yeah. But w- you know, when you read, can I ask you, so you've written a lot and you've had, presumably lots of reader response to your stuff. Um, when you read a personal finance book that you didn't write or when you wrote your own, like, are you, how are you trying to distinguish from other ones out there? Yeah, well, you're right. Yours definitely has a kind of edge to it. Um, and it's assuming people don't know that much and you're just trying to help them out. It, it's a very practically uh, helpful uh, kind of book. I mean, my style is to give people resources and websites and practical things and help them put the advice into action. Everybody's got their own angle. Yeah. I'll, Yep. A lot of a lot of what you talk about is kind of behavioral change. Uh, what is the one biggest behavioral change you'd suggest for a young person that's going to ultimately make them wealthy? Well, uh, I, I started the book talking about three characteristics of wealthy people, but maybe the so I'll, I'll mention those three. It's hard to distinguish one of them, but one of them is modesty. So modesty would be in both what do we think we can know and how how much do we need to know or think we need to know. Uh, another would be um, optimism, because I think you can't do it right if you if you don't believe that things could work out. Um, and then skepticism. I think you need to approach gurus and, and financial media with a, an attitude of skepticism. So, you know, modesty of for a young person starting out to answer your question more directly, modesty has to do with, you know, consumption. And can you afford that nice car do you, for the next couple of years? Do you need a kind of a, a car that's not as good as you deserve or or, or can you live in a place that is cheaper and more modest than you than you're used to? Um, because generally, when you're 23, your first uh, job is not going to pay you enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What are some of the things available now in 2019 in the investing world that weren't really available or even true when you started this uh, the 10 and 20 years ago? What are some of the new things available today? Yeah. So that is a to- I think a totally great. Uh, thing. So, you know, 
40 years ago, you had to walk into the wood paneled leather bound chair, uh, stockbroker's place. Um, and now you don't need to do that. You, uh, and then my generation, you could go online to E-Trade, but now you have these mobile investing apps where they keep it so simple, robo investing type of thing. Whereas if you had a little bit of guidance or you were able to self-teach, almost everything you need to do to invest in an incredibly simple way is a, a couple of mobile phone app clicks and nearly free um, connected to your bank account. And um, if you could have the discipline to set something up and then forget it, you know, set it and forget it, there's not a lot you're missing that would be different from what a highly expensive specialized stockbroker role from 40 years ago or 20 years ago could give you. You could, you could pretty much get as far as you needed to get uh, practically on your phone. Of course, if you had the confidence and knew what you're doing, there's a lot of ways you would also do it wrong. The do it yourself movement that's allowed by these mobile phone investing apps and robo advising uh, is also dangerous, double-edged sword, obviously. So you're a big believer in passive investing and uh, automatic investing and not doing uh, individual stock trading uh, and being active that way. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Uh, look, there's lots of people who have a lot of fun investing and that's great. Um, picking stocks. And uh, certainly there are some in examples of great investors who dedicate themselves full time to picking out opportunities. You know, famously Warren Buffett comes to mind. On the other hand, most of us don't have that skill. And so probably most of us should be doing the low cost, low effort thing, which is passive investing. Okay. Um, all right. I think we're, we're actually going to go to a break now and then come back and get into the details of uh, the book. My uh, guest this hour is Michael Taylor. He's a financial journalist. Uh, he writes for the San Antonio Express News and the Houston Chronicle. Um, his uh, new book is called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates, Invest Before Paying Off Debt and Other Tips Your Professor Didn't Teach You. Uh, his website, to find out more about him and his blog, is bankers-anonymous.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how 
you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for our special series on digital selling. Learn how you can become the savvy leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next wave of business innovation. Changing the game with digital selling. Presented by SAP on the Business Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Taylor. He is a financial journalist, uh, writes for some newspapers in Texas. He's also come out with a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates, Invest Before Paying Off Debt, and other tips your professors didn't teach you. Uh, you can find out more about him and his website and his blog at bankers-anonymous.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thank you so much, Jordan. So in the beginning of your book, you say you should be wealthy. Um, so kind of just talk about that as to the attitude people should have towards their long-term financial situation. Well, uh, I, I have... I think what I would call three wealthy person attitudes, which I mentioned before, is skepticism, optimism, and modesty. Um, and I, I like to start with the attitudes because everybody's situation is different, um, but we probably all need to adopt this common approach if you're going to get or even, I would say, stay wealthy. Because if you, even if you were born into incredible wealth, it's hard to maintain it if you don't uh, have the right attitudes. That, that's where I would start, at least attitudinally. Okay. Now, you, you talk about the financial in, infotainment industrial complex, uh, both you know, TV and radio and magazines and so on. What is the trap that people fall into by getting consumed by the financial in, infotainment complex? Yeah, I think that media, and look, I'm in media, you're in media, so obviously we can be good people uh, producing financial media. But I feel like in aggregate, if we are not careful consumers or receivers or filterers of financial media, we can be carried along with a, a series of messages that are ultimately going to undermine our long-term, you know, decade over decade building of wealth. 
I think media has an incentive. I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like media has an incentive to get an emotional response from people. So you can take a very ordinary situation, and if you can make it incredibly scary uh, and appeal to fear, or you can make it incredibly uh, tasty-seeming and appeal to greed, you know, fear and greed being the two motivators on Wall Street, then you can you can capture people's attention. And then, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of media is built around selling things. So if you don't know that and you don't have another way of filtering the financial media that you absorb, you could be, I think, whipped around. Um, and, even, and I don't even mean bad guys selling us bad products. I mean the good guys. Like, I mean like experts, you know, very respectable, you know, bond, the bond king or very respectable hedge fund manager or, or bankers or insurance executives you know, folks I worked with the Goldman Sachs, what people who don't work in the industry don't know is that these folks all actually sell products. That's kind of why they became experts. And, and I'm an expert because I used to sell products. Um, so it's hard to distinguish between the folks who are giving us um, independent advice and people who are selling us stuff. And, and, and usually they're, they're the same person, which I just think we should understand. <laughs> it's very, they don't, you know, I think like a lot of things, when I was growing up, they put the warning sticker on the on the music albums, but financial media should have a warning sticker on it, which is these people are probably selling you something. So be aware of that. doesn't mean don't consume it, but just be a, be a very skeptical consumer of financial media. That's so, my view. I don't know what you, if you agree or disagree. So how would, should people consume? Should they not watch CNBC or not get magazines or books? Or, I mean, it's, it's all uh, tilted or how should they yeah, well, consume my, financial media? Yeah. So I, I want to say, like, I don't mean it's fake news. Uh, that's a weird, you know, phrase that has, has taught us to distrust media. And I don't think it's that. It's that media has an agenda, and the agenda is not to make you wealthy. The agenda is to get you an emotional response from you and then to capture your attention and then ultimately, you know, you, your eyeballs for an advertiser. So we should know that and be skeptical. I, the, the best suggestion I could give, uh, the joking suggestion is in many ways to do the right thing uh, you want to be Rip Van Winkle and <laughs> do something. Don't be, be completely, uh, completely media naive for 40 years and then wake up and you'll probably be rich because you haven't done the dumb things in the, in the 40 years. <laughs> but if we're not re- literally going to be Rip Van Winkle, so the next best, probably more realistic piece of advice I can give is consume a lot less and a lot, well, a lot less of ephemeral media, stuff that lasts you know, for a day or a month, and try to consume more media that's, that's three years and 10 years and 30 year oriented. And that's essentially just books. Books are, books are oriented towards decades and, you know, blogs are oriented towards the next hour. And so yes. if we can strongly skew towards books, you're probably going to end up with a better set of messages than things that are skewed to capturing your attention for the next hour. Uh, so then I, you you know, have- I, I write a blog and I write a newspaper column and the newspaper column in many, most newspaper columns have a shelf life of about a week. You know, and that's, not a, that's not long enough. We have to have decades in mind, I think, when we're, we're trying to do the right thing. Yes. All right, then you have a whole chapter about interest rates and uh, yep. you call interest rates in practice uh, the time value of money concept. What are some basic things about interest rates that most people don't understand that you were trying to get across here? Yeah, this is a very frustrating thing. I wonder what you think here, but you know, I taught college students. My book is essentially a, a result of teaching college students and not liking the texts that were there. But these are really smart people at Trinity University, and a they don't know what the interest rate is on the, their student loans. They they don't have any idea. And then 
when they do figure out their interest rate, they don't know how to calculate, all right, well, then what's your monthly? No one's ever taught them how to do that on a spreadsheet. This is not beyond fifth grade math, but no one's ever taught them. So, so first you have to know your interest rate. And then the next piece would be, can you distinguish very carefully between what is a high interest rate? And in today's environment, anything above, you know, eight to 10% is pretty darn high. And what's a low interest rate? And that would be, you know, the one to five or 6%. And then if, if you can distinguish between those interest rates and you could do the math to figure out, all right, so how does that either affect you as a, as a person paying on debt or affect you as a person earning interest or earning a return on an investment? Um, can you then do the next step, which is um, what it will be the compounding effects of those interest rates over time? And if you could do that, uh, then you would be a very long way towards understanding how, uh, why, why the advice that people give you is, is given with mathematical certainty. It's just not really taught that way. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But the first step would be, can you, can you, do you know what your interest rates are and can you calculate, okay, so what's the monthly? And then can you do the, you know, the later step? So related to that is compound interest. Uh, one of your mathematical mm-hmm. chapters is about compound interest. People kind of understand it in general, but what's the specific idea without going into all the, the math in the chapter that people should understand about uh, how compound interest works? Yeah, the, I mean, this is the magic behind everything, both how it interest works against you in debt or how it works for you in terms of investments. Uh, if I was going to give somebody the first lesson would be our brains have a really hard time understanding exponential growth math. So why is it that the $5,000 vacation in Hawaii actually costs you $34,000 <laughs> if you pay it off over 15 years? That's why. Or why is a simple IRA investment of $5,000, how would that possibly, plausibly become worth half a million dollars um, 50 years later? Well, it's just 10% math. So we don't, we don't, we have really hard, so the first rule is you wouldn't know this by instinct. You would have to do this by really working, I think, working through the math. And I, and then, so that's the first lesson. This is not logical. It's, it's like, it's beyond, exponential math does not occur to our brains easily. The second would be actually doing the math and being able to learn how to do it on a spreadsheet, which I, I have YouTube videos teaching that and I try to teach it as a recipe in my two chapters, is very much the work of just a, probably a couple of hours. And anybody who's gotten through junior high or high school math could do this. It's not beyond almost anybody. Um, but, but we haven't been taught it because I think professors and teachers don't realize the importance of it. So uh, my second lesson would be this is doable. And, and there are, there's hundreds of people teaching this, probably thousands of people teaching this for free on YouTube, but we've just never been told that capturing this would, I, I think, unlock all the reasons why people are giving a certain type of um, uh, advice in, in personal finance. It's because of compound interest, both the way it works against you in terms of debt and the way it can, can work for you in terms of investments and savings. The next chapter you talk about the other math, which is discounting cash flows, which is the way you analyze a stock and what the dividends it might be in the future. Just what is the basic concept of discounted cash flow that people need to know? Yeah, discounted cash flow is, is the same algebra formula as compound interest, but solving for a different variable is the first thing to know. So this isn't more complicated than compound interest. It's the same thing. And the second thing is, this is what every bank and every insurance company and every pension program, so these massive forces that we are interacting with for our, for our savings, investments, um, loans, and pensions, 
they are all based on this mass concept of discounting cash flows. We don't know it because people don't describe it that way, but it is the fundamental math that is driving everything. And I think knowing the math puts you at an incredible um, advantage with respect to talking to your insurance broker, your banker, the folks who are running your pension, the folks who are running your retirement account, because you go, oh, I know what they're doing. They're not doing wizardry. They're not doing magic. This is math. And, and I could understand it. And I could have an informed conversation. And I could ask them questions. And I could be skeptical about what the product is from the insurance company because I, I know the math that they're doing. And if they don't understand the math and they can't answer my question, then, then maybe I need to be skeptical about the, the experts in my life. So I see it as a huge equalizer. Um, if you were to understand the math that is being done to you, then you can, in a sense, turn the tables and go, wait, I, I know what they're doing now, and I can ask good questions, and I can respond appropriately. It also happens to be, for investors like Warren Buffett and originally before him, um, Benjamin Graham, this is how you'd fundamentally invest. This is, if you were into you know, go, a do-it-yourself investment approach, you'd need to know this math because it's how you invest. It's, it's the basis for all investing. It's the basis for valuing stocks and bonds and everything else. That's the key. So how do you use discounted cash flow to value stocks? It's at a price today, but then you can project what the cash flow would be. How do you use that to make sure you're not paying too much for a stock today? Well, so this is interesting. I can, I'll give you a, the quick idea. I'll see if I can explain it quickly. And then I'll give you the more skeptical idea about why it would be really hard in practice to do it. The quick idea, the, the theoretical finance idea is that the, the reason why stocks are valuable is because we have a claim as a, as a tiny owner of a company or a fractional owner of a company to all future profits. So theoretically, if you knew what the profits would be uh, of a company going forward, then you could put that all into a spreadsheet and using this, applying this math formula, you could say, well, these future profits in years one, two, three, four, all the way to year 50 and infinity can be mathematically converted into dollars today. And, and that would be the application of the discounting cash flow formula. And if you can do that, and it's, it's not hard to model, it's hard to come up with what we think the future profits are. That's the hard part. But the math part is, is a easy spreadsheet work that a, you know, a junior high person, junior high kid could do it in a spreadsheet. Then you could get a single number today that tells you what the future profits are worth. And essentially that is the worth of a company with a few adjustments like do they own hard assets like buildings and other things. Uh, but that gives you a fundamental baseline value of a stock or any uh, investment that's based on cash flows like a bond. Um, so that's, that's what you do and, and that's how it's done. Uh, like I said, the, the math is relatively easy. The skeptical part, the really hard part is um, that we can be fooled by models. And by that, I mean, that all assumes that you are inputting a number into, here's what the profits will be 10 years from now, 12 years from now, 15 years from now. So even though you're being very mathematical and scientific, these are, these are highly uncertain things. So yeah. we have to be re-skeptical again that we actually know what the profits are 10 years ago. And, you know, this is guesswork. And we could, it's, it's science, but it's also a lot of art. So we can't be that precise. We could come up with a number, but again, we, we should be aware that these numbers are based on some art, not just pure science. Yeah, future isn't quite that certain. Very good. All right, we have to take another break. Highly uncertain, which makes fundamental value investing very difficult. Yes. All right, we have to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman Great. of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Michael Taylor. He's a financial journalist. He's written a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. You can see more about him and his blog and his website at 
bankers-anonymous.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Taylor. He's a personal financial journalist. He's written a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. Uh, You can also find more about him and his blog at bankers-anonymous.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thank you so much, Jordan. So you have a chapter on high interest debt. What are some of the highest interest debt uh, vehicles out there and, and how should people deal with them? Well, the most common one is, of course, credit card debt. They're as easy to acquire as catching a cold by you know, walking down the street. Uh, it's very easy to get credit card debt. And generally, the interest rates, unless you have a special teaser rate, start at about 12%, and they can go as high as 29.99%. So that's what everybody has in their wallet, the availability of high interest debt. It's very easy to get. Um, and one of the things I think about personal finance is if you have high interest debt, and, and half of Americans do carry balance from month to month, so it's extremely common that you would have high interest credit card debt. The good news, bad news, the silver lining of, of having a, a balance is you don't need to know anything about personal finance except pay down your high interest debt. It gets really simple. There's nothing complicated. Just pay it down, and you will massively improve your situation. And you don't need to be sophisticated at all about it. Just pay it off. Um, so that's the high interest debt we have in our wallets. There's other, I would say, um, equally bad or, or even worse stuff. You know, we have subprime auto loans and subprime mortgages. And, and if we readers of um, news from 10 years ago remember what happened with subprime auto, um, mortgages, um, there's high interest. Uh, there's even worse stuff like payday loans, and and that's a very common thing. And those are even higher rates of interest. Um, you know. Uh, so, and that would be even even more urgently pay that down, and your your financial situation would be vastly improved if you are subject to high interest debt. It gets, it gets I mean, real re- simple the, at that point. The reason people do payday loans and subprime home loans and car loans is they can't qualify for traditional lower interest loans. So, what, if somebody's in that circumstance, they need to buy a car, and their credit isn't good enough, what do you tell them to do? Don't do a subprime loan, car loan, or 
What are they supposed to do if they can't qualify for traditional credit? Yeah, the problem of of a car, if you have bad credit or weak credit, is a lot of people need a car. So in order to be employed, you need a car. In order to get your kids from here to the doctor's office, you need a car. So I think all you can control at that point is what is the price I'm willing to pay for a car? So don't get a subprime auto loan on a $25,000 truck. Try to get a, if you have to get a subprime auto loan, try to get it on the $7,000 ugly beat up truck. You know, all you can control at that point is the price. I would say people who have been onto a car lot have had the salesperson say, um, how much can you afford per month? And I would say that's a trick question. The right question is, what's the lowest cost vehicle you can possibly buy that gets you from point A to point B. And if you need a subprime auto loan, it's bad, but you probably need a car. So get the cheapest possible car you can get until you can pay that thing down and improve your credit. At that point, you're allowed to you know, stretch a little bit, but yeah. you probably just need to get a, a terrible looking car <laughs> because okay. a, a, a subprime $25,000 car is just too much. You'll never get out from under it. Then you have a chapter on saving. Um, and, and how to set up kind of automatic savings systems. Somebody coming out of college who may have a lot of student loan debt isn't earning that much. How can they set up savings when it seems like they need all their money to, to pay their debts? Yeah, the classic thing is everybody says, well, do a budget. And not being a budgeter myself, and, and I believe 5% of people are budgeters and the rest, 95% of us are not. I don't think that is the right approach to it. Um, I do think the right and and only way that I'm sure works is to automate. And by that, I mean, you go to your bank and you say, I get paid on the first of the month. And that means on the first or the second of the month, bank, please automatically take out X amount of dollars, whether it's $10 or $25 or $100, whatever you can afford, and put it into an account that I can't access very often or very easily so that it is out of my spending account. Because psychologically, I believe most people need that trick. We, we are generally not strong enough not to spend whatever's in our account. And then the next thing I would say for a college student who is, you know, 23 years old, you got your first job, the rule of 23-year-olds is you are not being paid enough money to actually afford whatever city you live in. The costs of that city are built around 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds who've been through a series of raises and bonuses, and they have a cushion, which you don't have, which means you're probably going to have to be a lot more brutal, at least for a couple of years, uh, than you want to be. You have a worse car and a worse housing than you deserve. But that's just the brakes because the cost of living, no matter where you are, is just too high. It's not built for you. It's built for somebody who pay, gets paid more than you. So I, I think that we, we should just know that. It's not forever. You don't have to have a terrible car and a terrible house <laughs> for, for too many years, but you need to survive a couple of years worth of not getting into debt and putting away a little bit of savings. And then I think it's doable. That's, that's my approach. Yeah. And you have a whole section on the FICO score. What do people not understand about their credit scores, and, and what should they understand? Yeah, there's only one number, uh, 720, that matters if you want the lowest price uh, loans. You don't need an 800 FICO. You need a 720, and then you can qualify. If you are below 720, there's a little range where you're in the in-between range and you're not going to get the best deal, but you're going to get an okay deal. And then below that, you're stuck getting a very bad deal. And by bad deal, I mean if you go to borrow money from um, a mortgage lender or an auto lender, you're going to pay a lot more. So this is, this is cruel. This is uh, the less money you have, the more you pay. And the, the more money you have, the less you pay. So it's an upside-down world, but this is true in many areas of 
personal finance. And a, a great way to save money is to, if you're in that situation of not good credit and paying too much, is work very hard to improve your credit score. And I guess the next thing I would say about your credit score is don't get fooled into doing things that the banking industry wants you to do to manage your credit in fancy ways and pay them high fees to monitor. I just don't believe in that. Just do the right thing, which is pay off your debts on time. And if you are behind, fix it or negotiate it down. Um, but don't try to do fancy, don't pay for a lot of fancy credit, credit monitoring. Don't, don't take out credit in order to build credit. This is an insane approach that doesn't make any sense unless you're a banker to, to push people to do that. Uh, be very modest about your, your borrowing and very skeptical that you have to do anything to manage your credit. Just, just pay your bills. And if you haven't yeah. paid your bills, then start paying your bills. And you've got a whole section on retirement accounts. And some of the advice you give is kind of controversial is that you okay. should do retirement investing, whether it be an IRA or Roth IRA, uh, before you start paying down high interest debt. Tell us the pros and cons of that. Well, this is complicated, and reasonable people can certainly disagree with me. My, my main lesson, the controversial thing I say, and it's in the subtitle of the book, which is Invest Before Paying Off Debt, is that even in your 20s, when you have student loan debt, um, it is appropriate to invest in either an IRA or a, even if you, have, if you have a great job, a 401k or a 403b. The tax advantages of the IRA and the 401k and 403b, as well as the compounding effects of having 40 years for your money to grow, are very plausibly mathematically justifiable even while you're paying debt. And the more that your debt is low interest debt, which would be mostly student loans for somebody in their early 20s, but then eventually a prime uh, auto loan or a prime mortgage, the, the, as long as those are prime and low interest, it is mathematically justifiable to maintain debt while investing for the long run. I don't mean trading stocks around in a day, day trading, that's very tax inefficient, it's not going to work, but in a tax-advantaged long-term, I'm talking 40-year vehicle here, uh, then it is mathematically justifiable. It is also controversial in the sense that um, you, could, you don't want to be in a, a situation where you never pay off your debt. You don't want to put in too much into retirement. And high interest debt, you don't want to uh, invest uh, much in your retirement account. If you have high interest debt, that's not, that's, it's not as mathematically justifiable. And then there's a psychological component, which is being debt-free is, is a, a very freeing thing, and we can have different attitude towards risk and, and debt, which would make my advice overly controversial or just deeply uncomfortable for folks who don't want to have debt. They want to be debt-free. So I, what I you're saying, though, it, it may be uh, difficult psychologically if you've got this debt, whether it be student loan debt or credit card debt, to pay that down more slowly to get the investment mm -hmm. engine started at a younger age. Because a lot of people don't think about investing in their 20s. They say, let me attack my debts first, particularly student loan debt, yeah. and start investing yeah. later. So you're saying that's, that's a mistake. It's very hard to, to mathematically justify carrying a credit card balance and investing. Credit card balances, you know, credit card rates are just 18%, 25%, even 12%. You can't get, uh, you can't mathematically justify that very much um, unless you have this combination in a 401k of a match and tax advantages where it's plausible. But generally speaking, credit card debt is not compatible with long-term investing, uh, carrying a balance and paying on that. Having a student loan, which is at this point 4%, 5% debt, it is mathematically justifiable to 
carry that debt while also investing. Similarly, with a prime mortgage of 4% or a prime auto loan of you know, 3.5%, it's mathematically justifiable. But again, you know, some people feel differently. I, I do think you shouldn't – There, it is common to say you have to pay off all your debts before investing. I, I don't think you should wait until your 30s, let's say, um, before you start investing. The power of compounding is so extraordinary that it, it, I, it, it is – from my view, mathematically provable that some investing uh, in the right way for the long run can be mathematically justified if you have low interest debt, not credit card debt, but you know student loan debt and a prime mortgage or prime auto. And this is assuming you're going to get the average long-term rate of return on on stocks and mutual funds of nine or ten percent. I mean, sometimes the stock market falls for for a while, but it, you're it saying does. in the long run so, yeah. you're going to probably always do better. Yeah, and it, there's a couple of other assumptions which I kind of don't get to into later chapters, but this also means you're not tempted to do a lot of trading around. You're not going to – you were able to get the long term in part only because you're, you're really putting this away for 40 years and you're not tempted to, do, to mess with it. So that's a, yeah. a key component of this. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Michael Taylor. Uh, he has come out with a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. You can get it at Amazon, all the different usual places. His website is bankers-anonymous.com. I'd like to tell you about a very enjoyable experience I just had cooking an every plate meal at home with my girlfriend, Mary. Every plate delivered all the ingredients we needed, and we made a skillet with pork chops topped with apple and green beans and sweet potatoes. It took about 30 minutes from start to when we served it. We also made a beef banh mai bowl, which came with rice, carrots, and cucumber. Both these dishes were delicious. While other at-home dinner options cost about $10 a serving, every plate offers five chef-designed healthy recipes every week for just $4.99 per serving. Every plate does the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you, taking the time-consuming guesswork out of cooking. I found each recipe very easy to follow, which took the stress out of cooking dinner. I encourage you to give every plate a try. For six free meals across your first three weeks and free shipping on your first delivery, go to everyplate.com and enter Money Answers 6. That's Money Answers, the number six. This offer equals one-third off each of your first three boxes. That means you'll get 18 full meals for just $3.33 a piece for a two-person meal or 36 full meals for $4.16 a piece on the four-person plan. As a listener to the Money Answer Show, you also get free shipping on your first delivery, bring the cost of your first box down to just $20. To try out this offer, go to everyplate.com and enter Money Answers 6. That's Money Answers, the number six, and enjoy a delicious, low-priced dinner in your home. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? 
Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Michael Taylor, has written a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates. You can see more at his website, bankers-anonymous.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thank you so much, Jordan. You talk about cars, so how should you make the right decision on paying cash for a car versus taking out a loan? Yeah, well, most of us don't have the choice to pay cash until later on in life, so you're probably taking out a loan. It would be lovely to pay cash. Uh, The reason to really try to pay cash is you you probably end up paying, if you only have eight grand in in cash, you're going to buy a a kind of a beat-up used car, and that might be a good decision, especially if you're young. Most of us are not going to have the cash to do it, so you're going to take out a loan. Uh, I think the key there is can you keep your payment as small as possible through uh, buying less car than you you think you want or that you think you deserve? And I like to just remind people that you're not buying your personality at the car dealership. You are trying to get a a declining asset, a consumer asset that's going to lose value over time, like a washing machine. And this is to get you to from point A to point B. It's not to um, prove to people that you have sex appeal and that you are the world's greatest lover, which is what car advertisements would like to tell you. It's just uh, this is to get you from you know home to, to work and, that, and back. So what are things, some mistakes people make in dealing with car dealers when they're buying a car? I think car dealers, uh, one is thinking that because you did some research online, you did consumer reports, that you were on par in terms of information with the car dealer and the car salesman. And I would say you do this, uh, we do this once every five years or once every 15 or 20 years, and they do this four times a day. So they have extraordinary advantage in negotiating over the car. We are not on equal footing, which means just be cautious. Of course, do your research online, but you don't have the information the salesperson has. So that's number one is, is be skeptical that you are on an equal footing. And the second is the question of how much can you afford per month, which is what they ask you, is a deceptive question that uh, glosses over how much is the debt, how much uh, is the car, and how much car do you really need? Those are the three essential questions. The how much can you afford per month is a way of mixing those up and I think really confusing folks about how much car they can afford. Afford. Generally, we should probably buy less car than we can afford. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then you've it's, got a whole bad chapter. Let's go on houses next. Uh, how should yeah. people make buying versus renting a decision in, in their younger years? Yeah, there's a lot of math calculations you can do. The basic question I have is, are you going to be there for five years? If you're going to be there for five years, uh, you can, I think, simplify your decision and go, it is probably going to work out to own a home. On the other hand, most people in their 20s don't know they're going to be in the same place for five years. Uh, so that's 
I would say that the five-year rule is how I would have somebody resolve this rather than doing a lot of fancy math on online calculators of rent versus buy. We, there's a lot of unknowables in those fancy calculators. The, the noble thing is, am I going to stay for five years? If you do, usually homeownership works. If you, if you can't, then it, it, it might work or it might not work. Apparently, you're not a big uh, fan of flipping houses, and people see this on TV all the time. What's wrong with flipping houses? Oh, everything. But the short way of thinking about this is, in my, and this comes from my experience on Wall Street, is the people who know how to make money doing a certain type of thing don't spend their time teaching everybody else how to do the thing. They just do the thing. So if your thing is flipping houses, just make your money flipping houses. Don't go on television and radio and special programs teaching other people. That's not how real people who are good at this do this. They just make their money flipping the houses. So I'd be very skeptical about people who are teaching you how to make money. <laughs> and that applies to a lot of areas like FX trading or uh, just, you know, all sorts of future trading, all sorts of stuff. Um, flipping houses doing is it, not teaching. Yes. examples. Right. Yeah. You, you have a whole chapter on insurance. Uh, you come mm. down pretty strongly on term versus cash value. Why should people do term instead of cash value insurance? Uh, the math there is complicated, but I, the, the question you should ask when buying insurance is, what is what's the risk I'm transferring uh, from my household, some catastrophic financial risk from my household to a big company, the insurance company? And I think when you get term, so that's five-year or 10-year or 20-year insurance, it's much clearer. It can be made much clearer what risk am I transferring? And, and probably, if you're buying 10-year term, you're transferring the risk that you, as, a, as the income earner in your household, are not going to leave your dependents, your spouse, your kids, bereft of money. But if you buy whole life insurance, it often gets mixed up in a whole investing process, which I think is confusing to the average person. In that confusion, the insurance salesman can make their money. So I think it just you, you're less likely to be confused, and you're less likely to overpay for insurance when you do term insurance. You have a chapter on work, and you say people should take the lottery test uh, when they're at work and looking at their salary. What is the lottery test, and how does that work? Yeah, we, do. we have the fantasy, like, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I think that if your answer is, I would quit my job, you know, the famous country song, take this job and shove it. If that's your answer, it's an indicator that you don't like your job that much and that you probably need to think about getting a better job. I think one of the things that make you, makes you wealthy over your life is, are you in a job that you like? Are you good at what you do? Do you enjoy doing it? And you're probably going to work at it for many more years and much harder and have much more success. But if you take the lottery test and you're like, I would take this job and shove it as soon as I won, well, then you need to work on your work. You're probably not doing good work that, that lights you up and makes you feel valuable and, that, and you're probably not going to make as much money and enjoy it and do as well if you don't. So the lottery test is very useful for that. And we've all had the fantasy, of course, um, of winning the lottery. And by the way, nobody should buy lottery tickets. But I've been guilty myself. When it gets really big, yeah, I've bought a lottery ticket. I'll admit it. But it's, it's, it's not a good fantasy in terms of are you, are you doing the right thing with your life, probably, if you're, if you're having that fantasy all the time or if you're actually buying the lottery tickets. Yes. You have a chapter on death uh, where you talk mm -hmm. about what you should do with your remaining lifespan and what you call aspirational wealth. What do you mean by that? Well, I think death is useful for figuring out what are our priorities. I don't think we need to add a lot of zeros to our bank account and sometimes death of a loved one or contemplating our own mortality, you start to go, oh, huh, there's a lot of things I don't need a big bank account for that might um, be how I should actually be spending my time or spending my emotional energy. Um, so 
that's why I think death is a useful mirror to hold up to your life and go, do I have my priorities right? And you could be, you could be a very modest, modest amounts of money in the bank um, and still be, I would consider, wealthy. Or you could be a really rich person who never feels like you have enough. Um, and sometimes mortality is a way of um, clarifying these things. Yeah. You end your book with the epilogue on being wealthy, and you talk about philanthropy. You're saying you should focus and not diversify when you get to philanthropy. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean that as the opposite of investing. A classic investing idea is diversify, and people can disagree about that, but it's, it's generally accepted for most people's situation you want to diversify. In philanthropy, I don't think you should do a scatter shot of when my friends call, I, I send a $100 check, or if your means allow, some people who are very wealthy, here, have a $10,000 or $25,000 check, or here's a $50 check but without engaging in the actual problem or the actual organization. I've, I have found it much more rewarding in my life, and I, and I find um, talking to folks who are involved in philanthropy, when you give your time and your expertise plus your money to an individual organization or to individual cause and, and be willing to say no to a lot of other things, I think you, you enrich your own life while you are hopefully addressing the problem. I mean, I believe philanthropy is both helping somebody else, but it's also making yourself feel rich and enriching your own life. I, I see it as a very um, self-satisfying thing. Uh, and the, the best way to do that and to be the most effective with your money and your time is to really concentrate into a problem. And if you were able to engage your, your talents and your money towards a, a narrow problem with a narrow organization, I think you could really make a difference. But but I don't think you can make a difference if you, ah, I've got 20 different things, I send 50 bucks, or if your means allow, I send 500 bucks to 20 different organizations. It's probably not going to be that meaningful, and you probably will not be enriched in your life in that way, um, nor are you probably getting to the root of, of 20 different problems, I think. Yeah. You say that uh, ultimately happiness is about giving. Uh, if you achieve wealth, that giving is what's going to give you ultimate happiness. Is that the way most people look at it? I think it's a key. I think it's hard to be happy if you don't have anything to give, if you don't have either time or talent or money to give. It doesn't have to be much money or any money. I think if you gave of yourself and your talent and your time, that's, that's an important way to give. Um, so that's a, I think that's an element of happiness. Uh, I think another element of happiness, and I will contrast myself with the FIRE movement, and we can talk about that, what that is, but the idea that you want to retire early um, I don't think is a, something I aspire to or, or I wouldn't recommend people aspire to retire early because I think work is also a key pillar of happiness. That sounds very maybe uh, puritanical or something, but I think work gives us meaning and gives us attachment to the world. And so it also gives us an income, which is lovely. But uh, if I had all the money in the world, I don't think I would not work. I think that would make, make me feel unattached to the world. So I think work is a key and giving is a key. Um, and probably some perspective of mortality and, and, and value, you know, lining up your values appropriately. Great. It's approaching one of the things, yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Michael Taylor. He's a personal financial journalist. He's written a book called The Financial Rules for New College Graduates, Invest Before Paying Off Debt and Other Tips Your Professor Didn't Teach You. You can find out more about him and his blog at his website, bankers-anonymous.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Michael. Jordan Goodman, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.